Tonight we begin to study the second part of Ephesians chapter 2. And specifically our passage tonight will be verses 11 through 13. I'd invite you to open your Bibles there. Now as we, as we enter into a new section of the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, Paul delineated a wonderful series of blessings that God had poured out upon the believer, culminating within a tender prayer for encouragement that we might move to a mature relationship with the one that has blessed us so greatly. The bottom line of chapter 1, God is worthy to be praised. Exactly right. Now in chapter 2, Paul elaborates on our new position in Christ. First he elaborates on our new position in Christ individually, and then he will elaborate on our new position in Christ corporately. A new position individually in the first 10 verses, and then a new position corporately in the verses 11 through 22. We've just finished our study, the first 10 verses of chapter 2, where we affirmed that our individual reception of salvation is by grace through faith, apart from works. It's all of God. And that was so important, so critical. For in order to understand our new position corporately, and Paul's call to unity, we've got to first understand the concept of grace. In fact, I'd go so far to say is if you don't understand grace, if you don't have a full appreciation of the grace of God and what was done to procure our salvation and the fact that we had really nothing to offer to the equation. Sometimes people say, well, I trusted Christ. I'm bringing something to the table. Give me a break. You're not bringing anything to the table. When we look at what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and that's why we do this once a month in communion to bring us all back to that position we should fall on our knees and realize that our faith is not a work. In fact, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and even in 10, we see that, that our faith cannot be work. Works is excluded in the same breath that Paul says that we should have faith. He is excluding the idea of faith and works there, or the fact that faith is a work. Now, there is one, part, one place in the Gospels where, where Jesus says, this is the work that the Father asks you that you believe in him. So if, if they want to... In, in that sense, the Pharisees were attempting to, to twist some of Jesus' thoughts around and teachings around. But Paul is very, very clear. The reception of the free gift of salvation is not a work. It's not, at least it's not a work in the sense of having merit. It brings nothing. It adds nothing to the equation. Are you getting that? It adds nothing to the equation. Nothing to the equation. And we've got to understand that before we're going we're gonna to understand the rest of this letter. The rest of the letter is going to be about unity. And then the rest of the letter is going to be about that four-letter word that begins with that. Paul's going to mention it many, many times in the last part of this letter. And but, but we're not going to get that. We're not even going to get the idea that God has a right to tell us what to do until we get the idea of grace down. So we learn that our faith is not a work. That's why we call it non-meritorious. Our faith is our responsibility to place our faith or our trust in the one who did it. You see what I mean? So if somebody offers me a gift, and they may have worked months or years or weeks, maybe make enough for hour days or maybe hours, but they've worked hard to give me that gift. And I just say, thank you. I can't say that I did anything to contribute to the, to the procurement of that gift. The giver did it all. That's what Paul's trying to, to bring, bring to us here. And we've got to get that from the first 10 verses. Or really, and I'm not exaggerating, or really, I don't think the rest of the epistle is going to make sense. 
we don't get grace down first. After salvation, we should live lives of integration where faith and practice intersect. We spent a great deal of time on that in the last two lessons. Where doctrine and experience meet at that intersection point that we call the integration point. That's emphasized in verse 10, but that's not all that's emphasized in verse 10. We observe that salvation is completely of God, but so also our life of works after salvation is also completely of God. You recall verse 10? He prepared these works beforehand so that we might walk in them. They are His work. That's very, this is very, very important. I want you to make sure you get this because sometimes we run into others in the Christian community that they really don't understand this and it creates a great deal of consternation and agitation in conversation. God does not make you exercise faith so that you can be saved. He offers you a gift. And he says, whoever, whoever would like to receive it, you can receive it. He empowers you to do so. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in common and efficacious grace, empowers it. But he doesn't make you do it. You choose, at that critical point in time in your life, you choose either to accept that free gift or to, re to, or to reject the free gift. You, you choose. God did the work, but we choose whether or not to receive the gift. And then God holds each one of us responsible for the choice we make, the choice to sing you. You know, we either accept it or reject it. You can reject it if you want to. But God's going to hold you responsible for that rejection. And that's universal across the entirety of the human race. Everyone's going to make that point in time decision, at least if they are to be held accountable. They are. There, there are going to be some people who can't make it. But those who can make it are going to be held accountable for the choice they make. Now, in the same way, and this is where we make that critical link, in the same way after salvation, God does not make you faithfully obey and serve. Are you seeing the parallel? Before salvation, he didn't force salvation on you. He presented the opportunity, and you either accept it or reject it. Now, after salvation, God presents you with many, many opportunities to serve him. And you either say yes to those opportunities, or you say no to those opportunities. I heard the door open. Would you go check there? They either say yes to the opportunities, or no to the opportunities on an individual basis. Now, here's the thing. Remember, just like you're going to be held accountable for the decision you made, whether to accept Christ as your Savior or not, and that's a pretty big accountability. You're either going to heaven or hell based on what you choose. He's also going to hold you accountable for the choices that you make uh, in, the, in the Ephesians 2.10 sense. He's, presented all, he's prepared all these great works for you before, uh, from before the foundation of the world. He's presented the opportunities. Now you say yes or no to each one of them as they come along. Maybe you don't even recognize them sometimes. Maybe you're walking so far out of fellowship with God you didn't even see an opportunity when it, when it was there. But God's going to hold you accountable. He's going to hold me accountable for that as well. So you see, he doesn't force faith on you, but he's going to hold you accountable one way or another, whichever one you choose. He's not going to force these works on you either. The opportunity to serve him, but he's going to hold you accountable. That's, that's Luke 19. Matthew 25, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may be paid back for the deeds, works, that were done in the body, whether they were good or worthless. So he's going to hold us accountable both ways, but he's not going to force it on you. Now, there is a, there's a system of theology out there that says God forces faith on you. 
He chooses who's going to believe, who's not going to believe. He made that choice of eternity past, and he's going to force you to either believe or not believe. That's not biblical. I really don't believe it's biblical, even though some very fine people hold it. I, I just disagree with all due respect. Those same people, at least when they're consistent, and I appreciate the consistency, they would also say there's no such thing as rewards in heaven because God forces obedience upon you as well. And that's just simply not the case. If God forced it, he wouldn't spend quite so much time, I don't think, in uh, encouraging us toward that behavior. There'd be no need for that. So this is, very, this is very important that we get that distinction down. Grace offers the gift, both in salvation and, we don't think about this sometimes, but it's God's grace that presents us with opportunities to serve. Do you ever think about eternity? I do. I've been thinking about eternity since I was a young fellow. You know, I just, I just have always been, <coughs> always been very well aware that that I'm not going to be here forever, and it's it's a, it's in God's an act of His incredible grace that He has presented opportunities to me and, and to you and everybody else to serve Him for the relatively short time that we're here. Now I know that lifespans seem to be longevity seems to be increasing at least in our culture. You know, what is uh, what is, is fifty the new seventy or seventy? You know, seventy is the new fifty or something. I don't know what all those things are, but but even so, expanded out to a hundred, and that's just that's nothing compared to the time you're going to spend in eternity. Because we can't really even use the sense time like we do here. There is there's a sequence of event in eternity. Events in eternity. It's a long, long period, and we're going to look back. One of these days, we're all going to be sitting around a a nice, clear, cool, heavenly mountain lake. Probably having a, a, a Pine Valley Bible Church reunion. And the, maybe, maybe it'll be the one billionth, two hundred millionth uh, reunion of Pine Valley Bible Church. We'll sit around that lake and say, you know what? Golly, I, I hope we don't say this, but you know, golly, I had so many opportunities. I just kind of blew a lot of those. I, re- I really wish I would have been more sensitive to that. Now, we may not have those kind of regrets in heaven, I don't know, at least not right after the judgment, until after the judgment seat of Christ in that immediate context. But I do believe that we'll, in some sense, realize all the opportunities that we miss. I don't want to have regrets forever. Forever. Now, now how, how we might have regret, because Paul does talk about shame at the judgment seat of Christ, yet we're, there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. You know, you, you have to... Uh, synthesize all that material together. But eternity is a long time. And I think for a long time we're going to praise him for the opportunities he gave us to serve. We may look at it like, poor, poor, pitiful me. This is what God put in front of me to do. Um, Whatever that is, you fill in your own blank. My life is so hard because I had to do this or I've got to do that. No, why don't you switch it around? Don't don't say I got to do it. Just like you said, well, I got to go to church next Sunday morning. I can't go to the ball game with you. I'd love to, but I got to go to church. No, you don't got to do that. You choose to. You have the opportunity. You're choosing to go to church. You don't got to serve either. But he gave you this incredible opportunity to do it, to serve or, or to give or wh- whatever aspect of service it is. Instead of having a pity party, look at what he's look at what he's laid upon me. You know, look at the burdens that he's weighing me down with. No, look at him as incredible opportunities. That forever, forever, God's going to recognize that positive decision that you made to serve. You see what I mean? Forever. So, the whole idea of sacrifice is way overblown in, in Christian 
service anyway. The only real sacrifice that was ever made was the one that was made on the cross. Everything else pales so much in comparison to that that we ought not to call it the same things. Now, we are united in Christ by grace through faith. We saw that in the first ten verses. And then in these next verses, we'll see that we're also united in this body of Christ together with other people. You see the step that Paul's going to say. All this is individual, the first ten verses. We are placed into the body of Christ by grace through faith. God does it. Our faith doesn't save us. God saves us through faith. But then once we get into the body of Christ, Paul would like us to remember that we're in there with other people. We're not all by ourselves. And we're, also, we're in there with sometimes with folks that we just really don't care for too much. Okay? You see, what Paul's going to do here in the last part of chapter 2 is he is going to let us know that we're not in this body of Christ for nothing. The last part of chapter 2 is not just thrown in here to occupy space. He could have saved the ink. No, the last part of chapter 2 is fundamental. It is fundamental, and we don't stress it enough. We haven't made enough of this idea of Christian unity. And I suspect... May I be totally transparent here? And don't, you don't have to be afraid. <laughs> I suspect that I know the reason why we have a problem with this corporate unity thing. Because many of our Christian brothers and sisters are quite frankly an embarrassment on occasion. Now they may think we are, but, but, but in my view, many of my, I'll just put it me personally, many of my Christian brothers and sisters across this planet have been, at least on occasion, an embarrassment. And we really don't want to claim them. You know, just like one of those family members, he said, well, yeah, that's, you know, they're part of my family. And I'm not just talking about people who've, who've taken a, a very public fall. You know the people I'm talking about there. We're not talking about those necessarily exclusively. I'm also talking about those who stand up before the public and claim to speak for God but do so in a way that's actually quite repulsive, either by what they say or the way that they're saying it. I don't think it's a big secret, but the TBN crowd really doesn't do a lot for me. Okay? Now, they do a lot for other people, but, but for me, I'm sorry. I'm just not into inch-thick makeup and, and eyelashes that come up to the top of one's forehead. And, and it, you know, just, it just, I'm sorry, it looks fake and phony to me. Yes, you can say who we're talking about. That's just me, though. Okay. Now, they would look at me and say, he doesn't do much for me either. So I'm sure the feeling is mutual, but that, it just doesn't do a lot for me. But I want to tell you something else that doesn't do a whole lot for me either. When I see on television and now in the movies, because Satan's kingdom picks these things up, when I see on television, in the movies, on newscasts, Christians carrying signs that say, kill the fags, it doesn't make me look any better as a Christian. That's hardly speaking the truth in love. It's hardly speaking the truth in love. But having um, been transparent and, and having said all that, nevertheless, if they have trusted Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, they are my brothers and sisters, even if I don't like the signs that they carry or the, the way that they carry on on television. They're just as much a part of the body of Christ as am I, or as are you. They're just as much 
part of this body. Now, that doesn't mean that I have to endorse bad theology or, or bad methods, but I do have to accept them as part of my family. For we're all here by grace through faith. We all got here the same way. God has called us to live in unity with the rest of the Christian community. And that cannot be done apart from love. So, in the rest of this book, we're going to see Paul really stress these two key ideas. First, unity. That'll be our passage for the next probably four weeks. And then, from chapters 3 through 6, especially in chapters 4 through 6, Paul will stress the idea of unity in love. In fact, in verse four, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, this is where the application section of the epistle begins. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. And that forbearance, that covers the people that are really acting in a really repulsive way with some of their signs. Or in a way that in, in people who I, I believe are acting in a repulsive way, in the way that they they lie to the public about the idea of, of giving. You give a certain amount, you're going to get ten times that amount back. So I think it covers that as well, especially the idea of showing forbearance to one another in love. That's chapter four, verse two. But we've got some time before we actually get to that position. Our old position. Paul, just to remind you, before we go into the idea of unity, our old position was we were dead. Before we came to Christ, by grace through faith, we were dead. Our new position, we we're alive together with him or raised up with him in the heavenly places. We're seated with him in heavenly places. This is our new position. Now, when it comes to our new position in Christ corporately, the last half of chapter 2 can be divided into three sections. First, the fact of the union between Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ. That's a fact. The fact of the union between Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ. The second division, the explanation of that union. That's verses 14 through 18. The fact of the union we'll study tonight. And then verses 19 through 22, the consequences of that union. It's my plan and you know about the best laid plans of mice and men. But it's my plan to cover the rest of this chapter before I leave for India. This is really fundamental, and I want to make sure that we get all this uh, covered before I leave for India. I really think it is life-changing. The fact of our union, of the union between Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ, the explanation of that union, and the consequences of that union. Now, for the rest of this chapter... Paul is going to be talking about unity in the body of Christ between Jews and Gentiles. Now, that's a discussion that happened a long time ago. We don't really have that problem today. Our problems are elsewhere. I just mentioned a couple of them. But our, our problems, if you go all the way across the globe, sometimes there, there are racial problems within the body of Christ. Sometimes there are economic distinctions in the body of Christ. Sometimes we have certain hypergender distinctions in the body of Christ. And Paul mentions these in Galatians. But the illustration, the situation he's dealing with in Ephesus from which we'll derive this principle is the situation between Jews and Gentiles. Satan has had a strategy from day one, and he hadn't changed it. And that strategy is divide and conquer. Why would I say he's had it since day one? Can anybody think all the way back to, to, the, to the time Satan first employed this strategy? Exactly right. He, he, div he divided Adam and Eve, and he conquered. 
He went after one of them, separated him out, and he conquers him. And he's been doing that ever since. If he can divide the body of Christ, he feels like he can conquer. Now, ultimately, he's not going to be victorious, but he'll take a lot of casualties along the way. If he can come in and divide a local church into one, two, three, four factions, he has neutralized the effectiveness of that local church. Local churches need to pull together. They don't need to pull apart. As one military person said one time, it, when, when his, his own troops were fighting, he stood up and said, the, gentlemen, the enemy is over there. We don't need to be fighting ourselves here. So we need to be very careful about this methodology of the enemy. Verses 11 through 13, our passage for tonight. Read this way. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that at, at the time, at that time, you were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Five things. Pretty serious separation. And then in verse 13, but now. Verse 13 reminds me a lot of verse 4. Do you remember in verses 1 through 3, we, we were in this terrible situation, and in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Now, doesn't he do something similar here again? Do you see what he's doing? In verse 12, this is one of those, you were in bad trouble. Five things actually separate from Christ, which means there was no relationship to the Messiah, or perhaps even the Messianic age. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the, to the covenants of promise. And here he's probably referring to the unconditional covenants. They had no hope. They were without God. But now, in Christ. You see, that was then, but now. This is what God has done for you. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 11, Paul starts by stating that the Jews consider Gentiles inferior, if for no other reason than the fact that they were uncircumcised. We, we do need to transport ourselves back in time just a bit. There was a, a certain palpable animosity in the first century between Jewish people who had come to trust Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Gentiles who did the same, who trusted Jesus Christ for eternal life. You see, for, for 2,000 years, the Jews had been the people of God. And they had become rather arrogant and prideful about that. And instead of, even though they had the oracles of God, instead of utilizing that and teaching like, the, like they should have, they not, not only did they not live it, they didn't present it to anybody else. They, they wanted to have kind of this exclusive club. Now, if a Gentile wanted to come into the commonwealth of Israel, they could do it but they needed to be circumcised and they needed to go through this ritual baptism that, that made you a proselyte to the Jewish faith. The original audience in Ephesus, though, was probably made up of more Gentiles than Jews. You see, we're, we're fairly well geographically removed from Jerusalem, quite a long distance removed from Jerusalem. And certainly there are Jews there, but here we have Jews and Gentiles that have both come to Christ. Now these Gentiles that had come to Christ might be tempted 
to overlook the historical cir circumstances that they were in before they came to Christ. That's why Paul has to let them know. Sometimes when we get a little lax with our historical understanding, one of the apostles has to bring us back down and say, no, this is, this is where you were before Christ. He did it to everybody. He did it for everybody in the first three verses. Remember that? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. That describes everybody. Now he, now he takes the Gentile believers and he reminds them that there was a time when you were way separated from all these blessings. So that's what he means here. So he starts by stating that the Jews considered the Gentiles inferior if for no other reason than the fact that they were uncircumcised. uncircumcised. Therefore, remember that formerly you, now he's talking to the Gentiles now, he wants them to recall, which has led some expositors, some scholars to, to believe that the people he's talking to have been believers for quite some time. And maybe they've gotten a little testy about their relationship with the Jews. Perhaps they have. We know they have in terms of the historical setting. So he wants them to recall something to mind here. Who were the, who were called uncircumcision? Now, hang in here with me. This this term that is used here is the Greek term akrobustia. Akrobustia means literally foreskin. It was not a term of endearment, as you might can deduce. This is one of those places where the, the Greek New Testament text, actually, in the it doesn't mean a lot to us now, but in the time that it was written, was a bit even on the vulgar side. Now, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit's sin in any way, meganoito, heaven forbid, but he, but he's, he's reporting what these people had been called. When the, when the, when the editors of the New, the New Testament translations bring this out, they're, they're a little bit timid in letting you know exactly what this term meant. But it's, it's a bad term. And it was meant to insult the people that it was thrown out to. This is not some sort of sterile medical term. <laughs> this is, this is a, a very insulting term. Certainly not a term of endearment. Now Paul's purpose here, my, my first inclination is why is Paul reminding them of this? If he's wanting them to have unity, you wouldn't remind them of what they used to call them. But this, this is not, the reminder here is not for the purpose of eliciting uh, an angry response from the Gentiles. I guess that's just how my flesh works. No matter how long down the road, do you remember what he used to say about you? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. You get, you get mad all over again 20 years, 20 years down the road. No, it, this was not designed to elicit a, a negative response or a response of anger. Actually, quite the contrary. It was to remind them of from whence they came. Paul seems to be doing this a lot in this chapter. It's to remind the, the Gentiles from, of from which they came. It was giving them a dose of humility, which implies that they needed it. Remember, it was several years back that we introduced a term called a mirror reading when it comes to interpretation of the New Testament text, especially the epistles or the letters, a mirror reading. And this is one of those places where we can get somewhat of a mirror reading. You see, if, if Paul is having to remind them of these things in order to to try to elicit some sort of humility out of them, then we can assume fairly safely that they needed to have humility elicited. You, you see what I mean? 
if in, for example, if in the book of, in, in his first letter to the Corinthians, if he's going to mention, no, Christians shouldn't file lawsuits against one another, then we must assume by a mere reading that they must have been having that problem. If he's saying, no, you, you, know, you need to flee fornication, then we must understand that in that culture, in the, the, the situation he's writing to, that it's very likely that that was one of the issues that they were dealing with here. So we see here that if he's, if he's attempting to elicit humility from the Gentiles, they must have needed it, which is why if you read most commentaries on Ephesians, they'll tell you that they believe based upon this, that the Gentiles had become a little high and mighty. They were in the majority now. They weren't minority anymore. They're in the majority, so they're starting to look down on the, on the Jews, and, they, and Paul's having to back them up a little bit and say, now hold on, there was a time when, when you were pretty in pretty bad shape yourself. When he says the so-called circumcision, it indicates that those who are using the term, this derisive term, were not at the time they were using it rightly related to God even though they had every advantage. So Paul is not talking about Jewish Christians. He's not talking about Jewish believers who called them this. He's talking about Jewish people who were very religious, but then had not accepted the Messiah. These people were not rightly related to God, even though they had, watch, every advantage. I spent a great deal of time over the last several weeks emphasizing the point that we're all born equally dead. And not for a minute am I going to recant that. But the Bible is clear that the Jews have certain advantages. They're every bit as dead, spiritually dead, and they took every bit as much of the work of Christ on the cross to save a Jew as it does to save a Gentile. But there are advantages to being Jewish, at least in the Old Testament sense. Since Paul brings this out in Romans 3, 1. You remember, we studied it, it's been five or six years now, but he says, what advantage has the Jew? Remember why he has to say that in the first part of Romans chapter 1? the first part of the first three chapters of Romans, he covers three types of persons who need a Savior. You remember the first was the immoral person? And everybody says, amen, brother, they need a Savior. Throw them out. You know, they, they're low lives, absolutely. And Paul says, Thank, I'm glad I got your attention with that because all you people that are judging them, you need a Savior too because the very things you're judging them for, you're doing the same things. <gasps> and they may not overtly, but either mentally or, or in some other way. And then there's one more group in the room, so to speak, that is probably sitting over in the corner and nodding their head. Now, they probably did it a little slowly because they said, well, sure, I believe that immoral person needs a Savior, but the moral person, okay, well, they're probably Gentile moral people, so they, I'm sure they need a Savior too. But me, Jew, I don't need a Savior. And Paul says, oh, yes, by the way, you need a Savior as well. And then so the Jew rightly says, well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I thought we were God's people. I thought we had advantages. And so that's why he begins chapter 3 by saying, well, what advantage has the Jew? Or what benefit is to be circumcised? Paul says, great in every respect, much in every way. There's great advantages to being a Jew. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. You see, God gave them his word. You had first shot at it to the Jew, he says. It would have been nice if you would have read it. Just once, but but we, we don't want to go too far down that trail because it might start being a little bit convicting with us as well. We've got, we probably have more, more Bibles in our household than they do in whole regions of other parts of the world. And the least we can do is read it. Now, 
But that's what Paul's getting on to the Jews for. You had, you, had, you had a great advantage. In fact, they have more than just this. This is just the one he mentions, and he goes back into the idea of everyone needing a Savior. But sure, there were advantages, but they didn't do anything with it. I hope you remember, we'll study it a little bit on Sunday mornings here because we're coming up to the Abrahamic Covenant, but circumcision was a sign of participation in the Abrahamic Covenant. Circumcision didn't save you. You should have been saved first and then circumcised afterwards. Same way as baptism. We don't believe in infant baptism here at Pine Valley because I believe a person needs to be saved and then baptism is an outward expression of an inward conviction of faith in Jesus Christ. The faith comes first, the baptism comes second. In this sense, the faith came first. You follow the pattern of faith of Father Abraham, then the circumcision came second. But without faith, circumcision is of no use. Jesus talked about this a lot. Certainly the apostles have to as well. The real circumcision is not one that's made with hands in a knife. It's one that's made on the heart. That's the real circumcision. So again, in verse 12 then we see, the Gentiles were at a disadvantage in at least five ways. They were separate from Christ, which means that unless they had contact with the Jewish community, they really probably didn't know much about the Messiah. Now, the book of Isaiah tells the Jews they're supposed to go out to the nations, but they failed in their responsibility there. So there was, there was no relationship either to the Messiah or this could be the, the coming messianic age. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were outside the people of God. This didn't mean they were excluded from God. There were people in every age, in every year that this earth has been here that have been saved, whether they're Jew or Gentile. So the Jews were the people of God, and, and Paul points it out. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. A lot of discussion in the literature about what these covenants were, but the best understanding is that they begin with the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, um, the new covenant, the unconditional covenants. That were, they were strangers to them. They didn't know anything about them. And since they were strangers to all this, they had no hope. I don't understand how people live without Christ. That is, it baffles me. Christians have a hard enough time living. And we have Christ, and we know where we're going. I can't understand people having no, no Messiah, and therefore no hope, or placing their hope in themselves, or the ability to be good enough to earn God's favor. And they're without God. So Paul paints a very uh, unflattering position of the Gentiles before they came to Christ, and in past ages as well. Then in verse... 13, but now, very reminiscent of verse 4, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. So all of the things that were a problem in verse 12, because of this relationship you have with Christ, now you were way far away and now you're near. That doesn't mean you're close, but you're not there yet. He's using these terms far away and near in a little different sense than we might use them. But why? By what means have we been brought near? We just studied it. Not because of our works, exactly. But because of what Christ did, because of his work. This phrase, by the blood of Christ, is, is pregnant with meaning. Over the course of the church, particularly in the last couple of hundred years, not so much before that, but especially in the last couple of hundred years, at least by Protestants. Before that, the Roman Catholic Church has taking a little mystical view of the blood. But the 
a proper understanding of this phrase, the blood of Christ, was, was probably just put as well by the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Gerhard Kittles was the editor. He, he did the work. I'm not sure he wrote this particular article. But in Kittle, it, it says that the blood of Christ is a pregnant verbal symbol for the entirety of the saving work of Christ on the cross. The entirety of it all. Not just the physical death, although that was part of it. It's not excluded from it. But everything that happened on the cross, the entirety of the work that was done so God could offer you that gift. You see the point? That's what was done to take us Gentiles from that position where we were in, in bad shape and then brought us here. You see, now you see what Paul's done as we close this time up together and we're, we're close to tonight. He's doing the same thing that he did in, the, in a broader sense in 1, 1 through 10 and then 11 through 22. He's saying you didn't, you didn't get into this position in Christ individually by your own works. It was grace that got you there. Now, he's doing that. In a, there's a microcosm of that that's taking place in just in these three verses to the Gentiles. You were in bad shape, Gentile. They even called you this acrobostia, this real nasty name. You were, the, you were the subject of derisive names that people used to call you. And not to mention the other five things that are mentioned in verse 12. But now because of what Christ did for you, you're in real good shape now. So when he calls them to unity, they should at least let their ears perk up and pay attention and listen. If we somehow think that we earned or deserved our salvation, when God calls us to get along with other people, in the body of Christ. And I mean, even people that are aggravating to us, even people that are really way off theologically or that are way off with regard to their methods, he's, we're, still to get, we're still to have a certain unity. Not, not accepting their views. Christ was specific about that. He wanted us to be unified in the truth. But there's, there still is this family relationship. We, we, have to, we have to recognize that we all got there the same way. So when I recognize that maybe some of the guys on TBN have just rubbed me the wrong way, when I recognize I was just as lost as they were, just as much associated with Adam's original sin, just as much in the need of a Savior, and we both came to our Heavenly Father in the same way, humbly by grace through faith. It's going to make it a little easier for me to have the type of fellowship that I should have with them. In, in a summary of these three verses, it might go like this. Once far off, now Gentile believers are now fellow heirs, fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And of course, that comes right straight from the Apostle Paul in, uh, in the next chapter. Heavenly Father, we are, we are so happy. We are so humbled by the news that there's nothing we could have done, but you did it. Can we but trust you for our salvation? We thank you that we didn't bring anything to the table so that we have no reason for boasting. We have no reason for arrogance or pride. And we have no reason to look our nose down at other members of your family. Help us to live as one in unity in spite of some of the personality differences that we have and certainly in spite of some of the, the doctrinal differences that we have. Help us to realize what's essential and what's not essential and to stand for the truth while at the same time speaking the truth in love. It's, it's not an easy thing, Father, but you've given us the Holy Spirit to help us accomplish it. 
I guess that that would indeed be the case. Not, not just with us in terms of the body of Christ, but in terms of us and how we behave as a church. Help us not to be ex- exclusivistic and, and try to separate ourselves from the rest of the Christian community. But we haven't been called to do that. Help us through your Holy Spirit uh, to live in unity with the body of Christ. And ask it in Jesus' name.